But we do read in Isaiah chapter 42 that behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth and he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. So as we enter into chapter 42, we know that this is speaking about, behold, my servant capitalized is speaking of Jesus. We know that for a fact because in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, Remember that he wrote it to show that Jesus is the King of Kings. It was um, for the Jewish audience that there's a lot of Old Testament references, particularly from Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet as, as we go through the book uh, of Matthew to show the reader who, uh, again, to show that Jesus came along and fulfilled those prophecies. So this here in chapter 42 is quoted in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 18 through 21. You can kind of put that in your margins as it speaks of Jesus. After he had healed that man in the synagogue, there was a confrontation with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. And, and they were very upset that Jesus and his disciples were plucking grain there in the fields on the Sabbath. And they said that's unlawful. And, and Jesus said that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And it would continue that confrontation into the synagogue where that man was there with the withered hand. And, and they wanted to see the religious leaders if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day. And it was Jesus knowing their hearts and he would say to that man that was in the back with a withered hand you stand up and stretch it forth and Jesus brought healing to him and it tells us that the Pharisees at that moment were determined to put him to death and in that same chapter there we see that Matthew records concerning Jesus as he was bringing healing to all the people there that were coming to him of every kind of sickness that it quotes here the first four verses. So we know that it speaks of Jesus. It's fulfilled by Jesus. And it begins by saying, behold. Now keep in mind that that word we see throughout the scriptures, behold, means to what? To consider him, to study him. It is a word that Dr. Luke uses quite a bit in his gospel. He says, behold, pay attention to this, study this. And here it says, Behold my servant, my elect one, as we continue reading, uh, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And as I read that, of course, Jesus, Mark's gospel comes along in chapter 10. Mark's gospel was to show us that Jesus is the perfect servant. Luke's gospel was written to show us that he's the perfect man. And then we know that John's gospel was written to show us that Jesus is deity, that he truly is the son of God. But in Mark's gospels recorded that uh, for the son of man did not come to serve, but to be the servant of all. And here, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one. And I want to remind us that you and I, that we are called to be his servants, aren't we? And Jesus, talking to his disciples, as they were arguing about who would, is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus would answer them. And I find it interesting that Jesus didn't rebuke them when they're arguing, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom. He, he would answer them. He, he would teach them. 
He would minister to them. And Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then be the servant of all. So Jesus, he led by example as he was a servant. He, of course, on that night uh, that he would be arrested and betrayed there in that upper room before he went to the garden, he would gird himself with a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. And he said that this is what you are to do. I've done this as an example for you. And Luke's narrative tells us that he did that as they came into that upper room arguing, even on the night that Jesus was arrested as he has the last supper with them, that last time with them, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And again, Jesus, in his patience, in his, his compassion, and desiring to continue to teach them up to the very end, and John's gospel says he loved them to the end, that he would teach them about being a servant and being the servant of all. I've done this as an example. But as I read this in verse 1, it also reminds me of the baptism of Jesus because Jesus, as he went to the Jordan, he was baptized. I have put my spirit upon him. Of course, it was the voice of the Father that was heard that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And he's going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And what that speaks of is that speaks of deliverance. And here, Isaiah is quite incredible. It's going to speak about the Gentiles. And and we're going to pick up on that in just a little bit. But as we continue reading about my servant, behold, my elect one, speaking about Jesus, that he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. In other words, that he's not going to be there in the street. the indication that he's yelling at everyone, um, that he's trying to draw people to himself in that way. You see, the religious leaders did that, didn't they? They would stand on the street corners and they would say these long and elaborate prayers and, and the people would look at them and think, boy, they're so holy, they're so righteous. And, and they did things to draw men to themselves trying to take the glory away from the Lord. And we're going to see that it is Isaiah speaking the words of the Lord is going to talk about that again in just a few verses. But Jesus wasn't one that he was just trying to be a celebrity. He wasn't yelling at the people. Matter of fact, Mark tells us that the common people heard him gladly. You see, he was the perfect combination of grace and truth. And as he would be on the hillside, he would say to the people, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. In Jerusalem, at the temple, he would say, come to me, all of you who thirst, and drink of me. And as you drink of me, out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. And the people heard him. And it was one time that the religious leaders, that they sent the the soldiers, the temple soldiers, to arrest Jesus and and bring him to us. And the temple soldiers went, and and they came back. and, And the religious leaders said, why didn't you bring him to us? And they said, never before has a man speaketh like this man speaks. They were just marveling as he spoke with authority, with the love of the Father, you know, with compassion. And and you see, that's a great example for you and for me. How is it that we speak to others, really? Are we yelling at them? Are we all intense? Are we wanting to argue with them? Sometimes I I meet Christians, they they want to get their point across, they want to argue, they're so intense, and and it's kind of like, er, you know, it's, it's hard and it's heavy. 
But I pray for you and for me that we speak the truth. We never want to compromise. But as Ephesians says, that we are to speak the truth in love. And that the people around us in our lives and linked to us in our lives would be desiring to, to hear from us because they know that we do care. And we have compassion for them. And I understand not everyone is going to receive us and want to hear from us. I know that there's family members and co-workers and others that are around this that say, I don't want to hear that Jesus stuff. I don't want you quoting the Bible. But I'll tell you this, as you continue to love and as you continue to minister in gentleness and in meekness, and as you show that you care, then there may come that time where they're going to come to you and desire to hear from you that truth. So here Jesus, he wasn't yelling in the streets, you know, he, he wasn't angry and all of this. The only time that we see really that he's upset is at the religious leaders, those who were keeping the people because of their traditions and because of the bondage they put the people in. They were keeping the people from the Lord and they were making the word of God of no effect. I remember um, when I was in college, I was uh, with David. My, my youngest is going to CSU here in just a few weeks. And so uh, in June, we went to an orientation. They make all the kids go to an orientation now. When I went to college, it was like I loaded up a 63 Chevy pickup truck, and my parents were like, good luck to you, and up you went, and you're just kind of walking around trying to figure everything out. Now it's like they got 100 emails, you know, that come to them, and, you know, they, they got to talk to the parents about your, you know, kids going and, you know, how to acclimate, and anyway... So it, it's, it, it's amazing. It's so much different than when I went. And, but we were up there for orientation, and it brought back some memories. And there in the main square, CSU is a whole lot bigger than it was when I was there so many years ago. But I remember walking by where they have the library and the student center, and they have this one building that has a ledge on it. And I remember very vividly, the, it came back to me how there was one time in my senior year, there was a couple, and they were there preaching. And I don't think they could do that today, but they were there you know, on this ledge and the students all would gather and they were just yelling and they were the fire and brimstone and you're, you're going to hell and you're all a bunch of sinners and the kids kind of gathered around and pretty soon I think they were there like two three days um, just you know for a couple hours just yelling and she would get up and 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 it was just hard to hear um, and finally the third day what it had done is snowed that morning. So finally, the kids, you know, there's like 100, 200 kids that are listening. They picked up snowballs and started throwing them at them as they're yelling. And I didn't know whether to feel sorry for him or think, you know, you kind of deserved it. But, um, but it, it was just kind of an ugly scene. And, and I'm a brand new Christian. I'm a young Christian. And I thought, is this the way it's supposed to be? And I don't think it brought glory to the Lord at all, honor to him. Uh, certainly nobody responded to him in the message because it was a message of fire and brimstone and God hates you and you're all a bunch of sinners and you're all going to hell. You know, what is our countenance? What is our attitude, our tone when we talk to people? And I pray that for us, that we wouldn't look at others as, you know, you're going to hell and all of this. Uh, we understand what the gospel is. That those of us who accepted Jesus Christ were a blessed people. We are forgiven. And heaven is real. We also know that hell is real. 
But as we talk to people, that they would see that we do care and love for them and have compassion for them, a heart for them. You know, it kind of reminds me, you remember that uh, it was Jesus that, I was reading this in my devotions, um, going through Mark's gospel, and, and it was this man that was blind, and Jesus took him aside, and he touched his eyes, and he said, can you see? And he said, I see men as trees, and then he touched them again, and he could see clearly, as Jesus said, what do you see now? I can, I can see men clearly. And sometimes I've read a few commentaries on, well, Jesus kind of made a mistake and he had to, he kind of goofed and he had to touch the guy a second time. Jesus didn't goof. But I think it's recorded for us, the Holy Spirit did, to teach us something. And that is that we were blind, but now we see. Amen. And the Lord touched us, but sometimes, sometimes we don't see others very clearly. We see them as trees, if you would. You know, we want to bark at them. You know, we want to, you know, leave them. We, we don't want to minister to them. We, we see them as trees. And the Lord has to touch us again so that we can see them clearly the way the Lord sees them. And that we would know that he loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. That person that irritates you, that person that you look at, you think there's no hope for them, whatever it might be, that there's always hope in Jesus Christ. So he didn't come and he wasn't one that um, his cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. In verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. And he will bring forth justice for truth. And he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. And as we read verse 3, it speaks of his grace and gentleness, his ministry to us. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. And you know what a reed is. It's kind of a, a reed is... Um, a grass-like plant is in the grass family, actually, that grows in marshes. And, and it, it's uh, very uh, green and when the water's up. But when the water recedes and it begins to dry out, it becomes very tender. So you walk through the reeds. And if you go to Israel with us, we go to the Sea of Galilee. There's reeds all along the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And when the runoff comes from Mount Hermon and the Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee, it kind of fills up, just like we have runoff here. But then over the summers, they use it for irrigation in agriculture in Israel. It begins to recede. And so those reeds begin to dry out. And yes, you walk through those reeds, they bruise very easily. They can break very easily. And the ministry of our Lord, who's the perfect servant, I'm so thankful that he doesn't come along when we're bruised and come along and he says, I'm just going to break you. I'm just going <coughs> to stomp on you. Or a smoking flax, he doesn't quench. He doesn't come along when you and I, our hearts are just kind of smoldering. Because there are those that, you know, I can see on TV and they say, you got to be strong for the Lord. You got to be on fire for the Lord. And I'm going... I feel pretty weak right now and frail. And I'm not on fire, Lord. I'm just kind of smoldering. And he doesn't come along and take a bucket of water and just dump it on us. 
But the ministry of our Lord is he doesn't break a bruised reed. When you and I are feeling bruised, when we're hurt, what do we do? We withdraw, don't we? Anything comes along, we, we have a bruise on our arm, and anybody wants to touch it, we kind of pull back. And that's what we can do when we're bruised. And the Lord, he doesn't come along and just break us and, and yelling at us, but in his compassion and gentleness, he desires to bring healing and restoring and strength to us. And in our hearts, when we feel like, Lord, I'm not... You know, I'm feeling kind of dry. I'm feeling just kind of like I'm smoldering right now for you. He gently, it's like he cups his hands on the, the candle of our heart and he fans back the flame. You know, I've talked to Christians many over the years that they said, you know, I was on fire for the Lord and really was growing in the Lord. And somehow this ministry or these people, they just kind of quenched that you know, fire that was in me or something that happened to them, unfortunately. And again, I pray for our ministry as we talk to others, that those who are hurting, those who, you know, that are not on fire, you can think, well, why aren't you, you know, on fire like me? Why aren't you strong like me? Well, you know, minister to them. You know, begin to, to encourage them and love on them. Begin to give them words of encouragement and edification is what we're to do. That's what our Lord does. And as we continue, he says, he will not fail nor be discouraged. I love that. He will not fail. He doesn't fail. I fail. The church fails. But he doesn't fail. And one of the things that I've learned that I always want to do is I want to point people past me and point them to Jesus. Because ultimately, I'll fail. I'll discourage. I'll say something I, you know, uh, will just maybe quite wasn't right or discourage people or whatever. We're all flawed, aren't we? But Jesus isn't, and he won't fail. And we can point people to him because he's the one that is perfect. He's the one that is righteous and true. And as we continue in verse 5, thus says God, the Lord uh, who created the heavens and created the uh, Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which will come from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I I like verse 5. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And and we see that Isaiah is going to keep emphasizing that he's the one that created the heavens and created the earth. And we know that as we continue, he's the one that, first of all, it says, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Uh, He created the heavens and stretched them out, as verse 5 says. And we talked a little bit about that last time because in the previous chapter, uh, it it talks about how he, he measured the heavens and the heavens, he spread out the heavens. And of course, uh, there are those scientists that believe that perhaps that the heavens are expanding right now. And Isaiah comes along and, and he talks about how the Lord is the one that is above the circle of the earth. He tells us that the circle is round. And Isaiah comes along and tells us that the heavens are expanding. Now with that said, I want to clarify myself because I know there's been a lot of talk about those Christian leaders that have come on the scene that believe in evolution and the Big Bang Theory that as the heavens are expanding, even as they do, I don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. 
there's a problem with the Big Bang Theory, and that is that it teaches that the sun and the stars were created before the earth was created. And we read Genesis chapter 1. I believe what God's word has to say. I believe in the six days of creation, literally six days. And I believe that he made the earth, and then we see that later he made the stars and the sun. So it doesn't follow with the Big Bang, but it doesn't mean that the heavens aren't expanding even as they are. And what is interesting here, that also, that it says that from, um, from the earth, that which uh, is, spreads forth the earth. Uh, and, and I think about that, and, and there are some who com, uh, commented on perhaps that the Lord has given us a little bit of hint about continental drift. That when the flood happened, as the earth rotated, I believe, on its axis, because we have good evidence from the fossil records that, um, that the whole earth was tropical. Uh, they found a mammoth up at the North Pole that had even vegetation in its mouth. Something happened very quickly to freeze that mammoth, to, to have vegetation in its mouth. They found uh, tropical plants in the Sierra Desert and also in the Antarctica. And as the floods happened, as, as the waters came, that firmament began to release all that water, that also Genesis tells us that the waters came up from under the crust of the earth, and perhaps that's where it pushed the cotton continents apart, that maybe they were all together. And as you look at a map, you see, for example, how, you know, South America can kind of fit into Africa. And, and there's a ridge that is in the middle of the ocean. And you, you've seen that perhaps in your high school lessons or in college. And, and the theory of continental drift is Isaiah telling us that he spread out the earth, that maybe that's what happened as the waters came forth out and spewed forth and pushed those continents aside and as they came to an end that the mountain ranges you know kind of crinkled up and the mountains raised up very interesting I would encourage you to go to answers in Genesis and you can read more about it and they'll explain it a whole lot better than I am but the word of God is so incredible here and who gives breath to the people on it whose spirit of those who walk on it verse 5 goes on to say it reminds me of Daniel that Daniel, when he was talking to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, the king of, of Babylon, having a party there in Babylon for thousands of his lords, and they're mocking the Lord, and all of a sudden the handwriting is on the wall, and they bring out Daniel to interpret the handwriting. And Daniel has a message for Belshazzar, and, and in that message he says, Belshazzar, God holds every breath you take in his hand. Now, that can be a very terrifying thing as it was to Belshazzar, or it can be a very comforting thing for you and for me who are in Christ. And we can trust him with our life because he holds every breath that we take in his hands. He knows the numbers of hairs on our heads. And he cares for us. And we're in his hands. And Jesus said, no one's going to pluck you out of the Father's hand. So we're in good hands, and he, he holds every breath we take, and we can trust him. We belong to him. And I, the Lord, verse 6, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. Remember, we saw that in the previous chapter. He's going to hold our hand. He's got a hold of us. And I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. You know, he was one that, as we saw, that he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now we see that, that 
to be a light to the Gentiles as he's speaking to his people. You see, God's intention was that his chosen people, Israel, was to be a light to the Gentiles. That they were to be a testimony of the reality of God. When it was Moses that was going to go to Pharaoh, that the Lord said to Moses that, that Pharaoh's going to see, when I bring the plagues down upon Egypt, they're going to see that I, and he's going to see, the Egyptians and, and Pharaoh, that I truly am the Lord. That I am truly am the Lord. And we know that uh, as we've even looked through Isaiah, that as we've seen those coming against him, even as it was told to Shennacherib who came against Jerusalem, that as we read that there in those chapters 36 and 37, uh, that the message given to Shennacherib is, you're going to see that I am the Lord. And that angel would come and slay 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. You know, when God made that covenant with his people, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. He worked miracles. And this goes with what the message to his people are, that, that I've worked in your midst. And you were to be a light to the Gentiles. And when those nations saw how they were blessed and, and God working on their behalf, it was to be a testimony that he is real, that he's the true God. But what happened over time, at this time in their history, they had rebelled. They were walking in disobedience. They had turned to idols, worshiping those Canaanite gods and, and idols. And the Lord's coming along saying how foolish it is. Those gods are worthless. They're not even gods. They're not real. You, you, you know, carve out a wood. You fasten with uh, metal this, this image, this, this idol, and it cannot help you. You have to prop it up. The foolishness of idol worship. And the Lord reminds them, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt into this land. I'm the one that has blessed you. And they were to be a light to the Gentiles. But at this time, they weren't because they had joined in in the false worship of the Gentiles. But later on in their history, when you come to Jesus' day, they still were to be a light to the Gentiles. But they had turned inwardly. And they thought that the Gentiles, and especially the religious leaders, they thought that the Gentiles were good for nothing except to fuel the fires of hell. There, there was only a few that remembered that they were to be alike to the Gentile. We see that in Luke chapter 2, Simeon. Remember Simeon after the birth of Jesus? That is, Joseph and, and Mary brought uh, uh, Jesus, baby Jesus, to the temple to be dedicated, to be circumcised. And, and there is Simeon. He's an older man. It tells us that Simeon, he was a just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And when he saw Jesus, Mary and Joseph, carrying that baby in their arms, he realized that this is the Christ child. And he would say this as he held Jesus in his arms. He said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, alike to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Not only is he bringing salvation to Israel, your people, but 
also a light to the Gentiles. There was a few that still remembered the words of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, that we're to be a light to the Gentiles. But for the most part, they thought that the Gentiles were good for nothing. They were going to hell. And even the early church had a hard time with that. We see that in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, when Peter went to Cornelius' house there in Caesarea, and he's preaching the gospel to them. And, and, and Peter had to have those visions about those, those animals that, that were considered unclean. And the Lord said, don't call unclean what is clean. And, and he goes to Cornelius, that centurion there in Caesarea. He goes to his house. He preaches to them. And the Holy Spirit fell upon those Gentiles. And they got saved. And, and the gospel then would go to the Gentiles at that time. Peter goes to Jerusalem, as it tells us. And the brethren were very amazed that Peter would go into the house of a Gentile and eat with them. And we know that even Peter still struggled with that, even though God gave him that vision, even though God used him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, he still struggled with that because Paul writes about that in the book of Galatians that I had to rebuke Peter to his face because he would not eat with the Gentiles. And Barnabas was a part of it. So they really struggled with that. And, you know, here is Peter, and, and he's not going to eat with the Gentiles. And, and uh, you know, Barnabas kind of got pulled into it. And we're going to kind of come over here in our corner and eat with the Jews. And Paul said it wasn't right. It wasn't right. And the early church had to deal with realizing that God was bringing salvation to the Gentiles. You might be thinking, why am I pressing this point? Simply this. You see, you and I are to be a light to others. And I've even heard Christians say, those Gentiles, you know, non-believers over there. And kind of, again, the attitude of, I can't wait till God judges them, and you know, fire and brimstone on them. But are you being a light to them? Do you understand that Jesus wants to save them? I really believe that the Lord wants to save this community. He wants to save, you know, this nation. He wants to save that neighbor, that family member, that person, those group of people that you look at and you snarl, and that Jesus came and died for them. And what can happen is, is that we can make the mistake that Israel was making. You see, we can walk in disobedience. And that just hurts our witness. I've had people up in my office tell me, why should I become a Christian? Because I knew this Christian. He was no different than us. He went out and partied. He was involved in immorality. You know, why should I become a Christian? So I can do, you know, what they do. I already do those things. And they're no different than me. I've actually had people tell me that. And if you're one that you're involved in sin and carnality and compromise, you see, it ruins that light because you're walking in darkness. You're not being a light that's revealed to those around you. And we know that to be true, don't we? So that's why the Lord desires for us to walk in the light even as he is in the light. Remember the lesson we had on Sunday? Because it keeps close fellowship with him, and sin's going to keep you in bondage, but also, as you and I are the light of the world, 
that is to be a testimony to others. And that's why Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, be an example in, in, in words, in your speech, in your conduct, in your behavior, in your purity, in your faith. And that's a good word for us. So can I ask us all a question? What do people see in our lives? Are they seeing light come forth? Are they seeing that we do care? Do we see that the Lord wants to save them? A testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ. They can say there is something different about them. They're not like the world. They're not like others. They're, there's something different about you. Not that they're going to see perfection. They're not going to see perfection in any of us. But do they see something of the reality of the Lord in you and coming from you? Or what can happen is that we're not alive because we turn inwardly. We can do that as an individual. We can do that as a family. We can do that as a church family. We turn inwardly and, you know, I'm not going to speak to unbelievers. I'm not going to be light to them. I'm not going to be a witness to them. You know, they're good for nothing but the fuels of hell. I pray that none of us would have that mindset or that attitude. And even churches can do that. There are some churches that are out there that is kind of like, you know, we're the chosen, frozen, you know, ones and, you know, we're the super Christians and we're the serious ones and no one's ever got saved in their church for years. But boy, they'll sit there and say, we're the real Christians and, and they turn inwardly and that can happen in a very subtle way. So let's be a light to others. Doesn't mean we compromise. It doesn't mean that we allow them to affect us, but can we affect them? And can we be a witness to them? A light unto the Gentiles is what they were to be, but they didn't because of their sin and because they turned inwardly later on in, in their history. And as we continue reading there in verse 7, to open blind eyes, that's our Lord, to bring out prisoners from the, the prison, uh, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. As we read verse 7, his ministry is to free those who are held captive. People sit in bondage and they are in darkness. And of course, Peter's the one that says, for you and for me, we've come out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's the one that wants to open our eyes spiritually. Listen, the world, and this may be a message for somebody who's here. Listen, the world will hold you in bondage. Sin will hold you in captivity. And the enemy wants to blind you. Corinthians, Paul writes that the enemy, he blinds the eyes of those who aren't saved. And the Lord desires to come along and just as he would heal those and touch those, as I mentioned in the Gospels, that couldn't see physically and he would heal their eyes where they can see. He wants to heal you and touch you here even tonight so that you can see spiritually. He desires to free you. If there's sin in the world that's holding you in bondage and captivity, why? Because he loves you. And he went to the cross for you. And there's no accident that he brought you here tonight and is to tell you, I love you so much that I went to the cross to die for you, that you might be forgiven and have eternal life and be freed from the penalty of sin. And also, the Lord desires to dwell in your heart to free you from the power of sin in your life. To give you a new heart, to do a new work in you. And that's the ministry of our Lord. 
And as we read, I am the Lord, verse 8, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And as we read there in verse 8, I think it's important for us to note that he says, I am the Lord, and my glory I will not give to another. And the Lord says to us very plainly, I will not share my glory with any man or any woman. And that's something that we need to remember. I think that, that sometimes, uh, you know, those who are in ministry need to be very careful that when it seems like success is coming to them, that they don't get into the celebrity mentality. And I'm not saying that those who are well known, that, that they got you know, uh, prideful hearts. I don't know their hearts, but I do know this. I'll speak for myself, that when the ministry grows or, you know, people give you a compliment, it's very easy to start feeling that pride or, you know, yeah, that was good. Man, I did good today. And don't touch his glory. And that's for all of us. And that means that every single day, because we can become prideful, you know, maybe it's success in business. Or maybe it's your intellect or whatever it may be, your strengths. We start to kind of take the glory away from the Lord and look at me and look how wonderful I am. And, and the Lord says, listen, I am the Lord. I'm not going to share my glory with anyone. And if anything good ever comes from our lives, it's because of his grace and his mercy. And every good gift comes from above. And the Lord is working. And we give the glory to him as an individual and in what he is doing, our families and this church family. I pray that Calvary Chapel Greeley would never take the glory away from the Lord. That we wouldn't be trusting in how many people are coming, how many programs, how dynamic the worship is. You know, Travis, he got the wrong, you know, capo on it. You know, that's, that's good once in a while because it keeps us humble, doesn't it? You know, and I, I feel your pain, Travis, because I'm up here stumbling and stuttering, you know, a lot of times. And there are times where I think, oh, Lord, I'm surprised anybody ever comes back. But I do know this, that it's the Lord that brings you back. And he chooses the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the things that are not to bring the not, the things that are, that no man can glory in his presence. We give glory to the Lord. And we want to make sure that we don't have that pride that creeps in and look how special and great I am and turn inwardly and, oh, Lord, keep us humble. The Lord's really good about that. You know, I remember when we first came up and, and started the church and it was after a couple of years I got asked to guest speak at a Calvary. It was a fairly large Calvary and I thought, you know, I'm really going to go down, and I think I've told this story before, but maybe I haven't. I'm going to go down and, you know, in my heart, I wouldn't express it, but I'm going to go down and really show them that, you know, I'm becoming a good teacher, and I can't wait. So I gave this lesson out of Leviticus about, you know, if you're blind or lame or, you know, for the priesthood, and, and it, the, the application is, you know, if we're blind spiritually, the Lord can't use us, you know, things like that. Well, here I am teaching. All of a sudden, a guy in a wheelchair comes up the middle row, and I'm thinking, what is he doing? And he comes and he stops right in front of me, and he says, I'm going to make you squirm, Pastor. 
I didn't know what he was going to do. And finally, a couple guys came up and got him. But after the service, I went and talked to him. And he said, it just kind of got to me what you're saying. And, and when we got to talking, I realized that it was a couple years before that I had done his daughter's wedding and officiated it. So he apologized. We talked. But on the way home, the Lord really spoke to me. And he said, don't you ever do that again. I'm thinking, what? Don't you ever go up thinking that you're really going to show the people how smart you are. That every time that I come up here to pray about it, to seek the Lord about it, to come up in the fear of the Lord, in the humility of the Lord, and to really see it as a privilege. God uses me in spite of me. And I'm so thankful that he gives me the privilege to be here every week, to be on radio or whatever, to be able to give his word and to give the gospel. And I want to stay humble before him. And I pray that for all of us, as we do that, as we stay humble before him, he wants to use us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But let's not touch his glory. All the glory goes to him. Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, as we stop here, we thank you for these encouraging words from the book of Isaiah. Lord, um, I just pray that, that as we read this, that we're very thankful for the ministry of the perfect servant, um, the one who came to be the servant of all, who humbled himself, came from heaven, was obedient, obedient to the death on the cross and died for us. So I pray if there's anyone that is here tonight in this sanctuary, maybe in a coffee shop, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Listen, he loves you. That's why he came. He came to die for your sins. And every man and every woman born since Adam is a sinner. And the Bible is clear about that. And the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. And that's why Jesus came, to bring life. He went to a cross and hung on that cross and shed his blood to make atonement for your sins. He took your sins upon himself and died for you, every one of your sins. And the message that he gives you tonight is that I love you and I died for you and I want to forgive you. It's available if you just call out to him. If you call upon the name of Jesus and say, I need to be forgiven and I need you, Jesus, in my life as my Lord and Savior. And you're in bondage to the world. You're discouraged. You're defeated. But Jesus has come to give you life. And to forgive you and to give you a new heart. He is your Savior. He is the Savior of the world. There is none other. Will you come to him? Will you surrender your heart to him and give your life to him and ask him into your heart as Lord and Savior? You pray right where you are. Jesus, I come and I confess that I'm a sinner and I need you. Forgive me. And I thank you for your love and forgive me of my sins and be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for loving me and I thank you for bringing me here tonight. Thank you for this new beginning. And I want to know you 
and walk with you. And Lord, I want to, I want to please you with my life, but Lord, I can't do it in my own flesh. Lord, I got so many things going on in my life. I don't know where to begin, but I begin right now by just giving my life to you. And I ask that you would fill me with your love and with your joy. And I thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And listen, if there's anyone here, you prayed that prayer. We're going to have a ministry team up front here. I want you to come up and tell them you made that decision. And we want to pray with you and bless you. But for all of us, Lord, we thank you that you do not break a bruised reed. and You don't quench a smoking flax. And there may be some here that are bruised and hurting or just kind of smoldering spiritually. And I pray that you administer your compassion and grace to them. That you're the one that holds every breath we take in your hands. And we can trust you with our lives because we trust you with our salvation. And Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you and be a light to others. But Lord, brighten that light in our hearts. I do. I just pray for everyone here that we be a light to those linked to us in our lives. So Lord, I thank you for tonight working in our hearts. I know there's so many needs here. May we go out of here encouraged that, Lord, you see us.